Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, we are in a, um, a sermon series um, about walking with uh, how we walk. Uh, words, these What's the title? Uh, These words are meant for walking. And so the word today is the word regeneration. And John 3 begins by introducing us to a man named Nicodemus. And we're told that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. By this, we understand that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, therefore, an influential man. He held a seat on the council that functioned as the judicial authority over the Jews. Um, They had a much different government structure back then than we do today. Uh, So it's difficult to make comparisons between the Jewish civil government and the American civil government, but we can try. And the office that Nicodemus held um, in the Jewish civil government would be um, consistent or similar to uh, that of a senator in our American civil government. So uh, Nicodemus was a, um, a man who held a position of power and influence. Verse 2 says that he came to Jesus by night. And many commentators have suggested that coming to Jesus by night indicates that Nicodemus was trying to be secretive and covert about his meeting with Jesus. Since many, in fact, most of the other members of the Sanhedrin were not fans of Jesus, Nicodemus, it is suggested, chose to visit Jesus under the cloak of darkness to escape the notice of others. But it's also also possible that Nicodemus was just a busy man. And of course, we know that Jesus was a busy man. And so Nicodemus coming at night may have been nothing other than that was the only time that they could have an interrupted conversation. Whatever the case, you'll notice that when Nicodemus did come to Jesus, He was not coming as an enemy. He was not trying to trap Jesus with a trick question, as many other Pharisees had been known to do. Rather, Nicodemus came earnestly and was genuinely complimentary to Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now notice that Nicodemus esteems Jesus as a teacher. Nicodemus was a teacher as well. This is acknowledged a little later in the conversation when Jesus asked him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? So this is, this is one teacher coming to another to discuss a matter of personal interest. Yet there's something lacking in Nicodemus' perception of Jesus. He correctly esteems Jesus to be a teacher who comes from God But that's all Nicodemus perceives Jesus to be. He didn't say to Jesus, I know that you are the long-awaited Messiah who comes from God because only the Messiah can do the signs that you do. No, at this point in Nicodemus' spiritual development, he only perceives Jesus to be a rabbi who enjoys the blessing of God upon his ministry. So he comes to Jesus And he politely acknowledges that he perceives Jesus to be a teacher from God. 
Now, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is surprising. He immediately launches into an explanation about the necessity of being born again. And the reason I say this is surprising is because Nicodemus never said anything about the kingdom of God, nor did he even ask a question. At least, there's no question recorded in our sermon text. Maybe Nicodemus did ask a question, but it's been omitted from the biblical text. Or maybe Jesus discerned the question that Nicodemus was going to ask before he even had a chance to vocalize it. Either way, what's clearer is that Jesus saw the opportunity to speak about the kingdom of God. So he did. Verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we can surmise from this response of Jesus that the question Nicodemus was bringing to Jesus has something to do with attaining eternal life. It's very much like the question the rich young ruler brought to Jesus. In fact, there is a minority view amongst biblical scholars that Nicodemus was the rich young ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the account of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and asking, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? John does not record that conversation. But John does record this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, who is a ruler in Israel, presumably a rich man, and maybe he was a young man. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to give all his possessions to the poor, and then he'll have treasures in heaven. And when the young ruler heard this, the text tells us that he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. And it's suggested by some, that minority view, that that was Nicodemus who went away sorrowful because he was very rich. And what we're reading here in John 3 is the second conversation Nicodemus is having with Jesus. It's suggested that after he thought about what Jesus had said in the first conversation, that Nicodemus is now returning for a follow-up conversation. And that would, in fact, give us some context for the response that Jesus gives to Nicodemus when he comes and he actually doesn't even ask a question. But I don't think there's enough biblical evidence to really establish that connection between Nicodemus and the rich young ruler. It's an interesting perspective, but it's based in speculation. Nevertheless, it does appear that Nicodemus came to Jesus with a similar question, whether on his lips or in his heart, that the rich young ruler had asked because Jesus' response directly addressed how a person can attain eternal life. He said, you must be born again. And this was, the, this was an unexpected answer for Nicodemus because of a couple reasons. One of which is that the Pharisees were always focused on outward behavior. They were always focused on keeping the law. So Nicodemus was probably expecting Jesus to say that he needed to do something in order to gain eternal life. But Jesus went in an entirely different direction. He spoke about being reborn. And this confused Nicodemus. So he asked, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
It becomes apparent, in fact, evident from Jesus' response uh, as this dialogue develops that Jesus was talking about spiritual rebirth. To be born again must be understood as a metaphor for spiritual regeneration. It's what Paul is describing in our secondary text from uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, don't let the variation of, of terminology distract you from what the Scriptures are teaching us. Whether the Bible is using the term born again or being made into a new creation or being renewed in the Holy Spirit, all these terms are referring to the doctrine of regeneration. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about regeneration and Paul was writing to the Corinthians about regeneration. And they're just using slightly different terminology to describe the same thing. To understand what regeneration is, it can be helpful for us to first understand what it's not. Regeneration is not making a decision to follow Christ. Nor is it something that happens to a sinner after he repents of his sins. Regeneration is not an act of faith. It's not what a person believes or trusts or commits himself to. It's not God's declaration that the sinner is righteous in Christ. That's the doctrine of justification. And that comes after regeneration. Nor is it God's work of conforming his people into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of sanctification. And that comes after justification, which comes after regeneration. While all of the things I just mentioned are indeed essential parts of the process of salvation, regeneration precedes them all. It precedes sanctification, it precedes justification, it precedes repentance, it precedes faith itself. Regeneration is defined as the instantaneous change when God brings elect sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the quickening work of God acting upon elect sinners who are dead in the trespasses of their sins. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's the beginning of a new life. It's when the sinner is born again unto eternal life. It's when he becomes a new creation. Paul described God's activity of regeneration in Ephesians 2.1. He wrote, and you... He made alive who were dead in the trespasses of sin. That's regeneration. When God made alive those who were dead in the trespasses of their sin. And then Paul reiterates again in the next sentence, God who is rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. Now notice the mention of God's mercy there in that passage from Ephesians. Regeneration is God mercifully bringing people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. And in Romans 8, 2, we're told that regeneration causes a sinner to be freed from the law of sin and death and to come under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And this is not just a, a change in the person's status with God. 
but it's a change in the person's nature. Ephesians 4.24 says that the regenerate person receives a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a very important point to understand. According to Ephesians 4.24, the regenerate person receives a new nature, a new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Whereas the old nature that all of us have been born with is held in bondage to sin, the new nature that God gives to those he regenerates, is, it makes all things new. So the regenerate person has a new perspective on God. He has a new perspective on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has a new, new perspective on sin, on holiness, on the world, on the gospel, on the life to come, and so on and so on. He has a new perspective on everything. But it's more, regeneration is more than just having a new perspective. Because the regenerate person has received a new nature, he also has new abilities. For the first time in his existence, he is not only able to know and understand the truth God has revealed as necessary for salvation, but he also is able to walk in those truths. Because he has been brought from death to life and given a new nature that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, he's able to walk in the glorious light of God's revealed truth. So to really appreciate what God accomplishes in the new birth, we need to appreciate man's condition prior to the new birth. And here I'm referring to the doctrine of original sin. One of the scriptures that gives me a lot of encouragement and hope, uh, hope for the bride of Christ, the universal church here on earth, uh, is Ephesians 4.13. Uh, this verse says that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to edify the body of Christ until, until what? There's a time reference in Ephesians 4.13. God has given these aforementioned ministers of the word to equip the saints and edify the body of Christ, not forever. He has given these ministers of the word for a specific period of time. And Ephesians 4.13 tells us when that time will come to a completion. Do you know what it says? It says till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And the fullness of this unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God will reach its completion at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know that as we put together the biblical chronology. But between now and then, and here's the point, between now and then, we can expect to see Christians increasingly becoming more unified in the faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we can expect to see Christians from all different branches, all different denominations within the church of Jesus Christ coming to a greater uh, agreement and solidarity on the doctrines of our Christian faith. Now, right now, 
where we happen to be in redemptive history, there are some differences between Christians on secondary doctrines. For example, within the universal church of Jesus Christ, there are discernible differences between Calvinists and Arminians. There are regenerate people in both groups. It's not like one's Christian and the other's not. No, they're both Christians. Both groups are comprised of Christians. But there are several doctrinal disagreements between these groups, which is to say, we have not yet come to the fullness of the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. There's still progress to be made. Now, one of the areas um, where we can expect to see progress is the doctrine of original sin. Calvinists say that when Adam ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, all humanity fell into a state of depravity such that every aspect of man's being came under the dominion of sin. His soul, his body, his intellect, his affections, his will, the totality of man's nature came under the dominion of sin. Arminians say that's too strong of a declaration. They agree that Adam's sin affected every human being, but not to the degree that every aspect of man's nature is under the dominion of sin. And this is most apparent when it comes to the consideration of the natural man, the unregenerate man's will. While the Calvinist says that the natural man's will is so enslaved to sin that he cannot choose to receive the free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Arminian says, oh, he can. He can make that choice if if that's what he wants to do. The Arminian says that the natural man's will is not enslaved to sin, but it's free. And this is what's meant by the term free will. The debate is whether the natural man's will is in bondage to the power of sin or is free from bondage uh, of sin. And if you say that the natural man does have free will, then you're taking the Arminian side. If you say that the natural man does not have free will, then you're taking the Calvinist side. Now you might think that because this debate has been going on between Calvinists and Arminians for 500 years, that this must be one of those areas of doctrine where the Bible is ambiguous and we can really never know what the truth is. But I don't believe that the scriptures are unclear on this point. For example, Ephesians 4.18 describes a natural man as being alienated from the life of God because his understanding is darkened due to the ignorance and blindness of his heart. And when you unpack what each of those terms mean, there's no room for the Arminian assertion that the natural man retains the ability to discern his need for Christ and choose to believe upon him for salvation. There's just no room for that. Another example of a passage that directly refutes the Arminian position of man's will is 1 Corinthians 2.14. We looked at this passage several weeks ago uh, when we first began the sermon series. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now we might ask the Arminian to explain how the natural man can freely choose to receive the gospel 
when he cannot receive the things of God, nor can he discern the things of God because they're foolishness to him. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, speaks about the carnal mind, which is just another term for the natural man's understanding and will. It says that the carnally-minded man is spiritually dead and is at enmity with God, hostility with God. And then it goes on to say that the carnal mind cannot be in subjection to God, nor can it please God. So we have to ask ourselves, how can the Arminians say that a carnally-minded man can freely choose to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ when Romans 8 says that this same man is dead in his sins, is at enmity with God, and unable to subject himself to God, and is unable to please God. There are many, many more passages that can be cited, but I think the three that I just cited sufficiently demonstrate that the, the biblical teaching on original sin is that the nature of man's will is enslaved, so enslaved to sin, that he cannot choose anything but sin. So how is this doctrine of original sin relevant to the doctrine of regeneration? Well, very simple. If the natural man is incapable of understanding the spiritual things of God, and if he's un, un, in, completely incapable of choosing to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, then some radical transformation has to happen to him if he's going to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. He needs to be born again. He needs to be made a new creation. He needs a new nature created after the likeness of God in, in true righteousness and holiness. Only then can the sinner call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. When you read all the scripture has to say about regeneration, you'll notice that um, it often highlights just one characteristic of the new creation that God has created. For instance, that's what Jesus did in our sermon text from John 3. He said in verse 3 that unless a person is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Two verses later, in John 3, 5, Jesus made a similar statement saying that a person cannot enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Uh, this was not a redundant statement. Jesus is not saying the same thing twice. To enter the kingdom of God, the second statement in verse 5, is to be adopted into the family of God. Or as Colossians 1.13 puts it, it's to be delivered by God from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. Right? That's what it means to enter the kingdom. But to see the kingdom of God focuses our attention on the new eyes that are given to the born-again person. Have you ever witnessed Jesus subduing his enemies in this world? Have you ever used the spiritual weapons of our warfare to pull down strongholds and cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? Have you ever prayed for wicked people's thoughts to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and then it happened? In Luke 10, 
when Jesus sent the 70 disciples two by two into all the cities. Verse 17 says, they returned with joy saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. And Jesus responded by affirming their observation. Yes, he said, um, that's because I have given you power and authority over the enemy. And then Jesus prayed, he prayed to the Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. And then after Jesus finished praying, he said to his disciples, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. And we learn from this that the 70 disciples were given the eyes to see the authority of Jesus as it was being exercised over the the demonic realm. Uh, But there were other people who witnessed the exact same events as the disciples had witnessed, but they came away with a totally different interpretation of what they saw. The the so-called wise and prudent people of this world did not have the eyes to see the kingdom of God. They did not have the eyes to perceive how Jesus was exercising his authority over the demons. God had hidden that from them. But for the disciples, the 70 disciples, they could see the kingdom of God because God had given them the eyes to see. To perceive the power and authority of Jesus in this world requires new eyes. This is what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God advancing in this world, exercising uh, Jesus' power and authority over the enemy requires the eyes that come with being made into a new creation. You have those eyes, brothers and sisters. You have those eyes. If you're a new creation, then you have those spiritual eyes. You just need to make sure that your spiritual eyes are open so that you can see the kingdom of God. For example, every four years, we have a presidential election in our country. In the months leading up to the election, we talk about the presidential candidates. Inevitably, people start asking, but who's gonna turn this nation around? Who's gonna rescue us from the corruption in Washington? Who's gonna reverse all the bad policies the previous administration put in place? Those kinds of questions are not consistent with eyes that see the kingdom of God. Eyes that see the kingdom of God are not looking for help from a man who sits in the Oval Office because they know that our help is in the name of the Lord who sits enthroned in heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. That's exactly what he said just prior to his ascension into heaven. Acts 1 tells us how the apostles stood on the mountain in Galilee and they watched as a resurrected Christ was taken up and the, uh, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And then two angels appeared and said, you know, what are you looking at? Don't you know Christ is gonna return in a like manner? That's the ascension account that we read in Acts 1. The prophet Daniel tells us about Jesus' ascension as well. 700 years before it actually happened, 
Daniel had a vision of Jesus ascending into heaven, and he recorded that vision in Daniel 7. But unlike the apostles who witnessed the ascension from the mountain in Galilee, Daniel saw the ascension from the vantage of heaven. The apostles saw it from the vantage of earth. Daniel saw it from the vantage of heaven. And he begins in Daniel 7 by describing the heavenly throne room before Jesus had entered into it. He describes seeing God the Father sitting in that throne room. The ancient of days took his seat. His vestiture, his vesture was white like snow. The hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with, th- with flames, its wheels with a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And then Daniel described what happened when Jesus ascended into this throne room. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So brothers and sisters, that describes the kingdom that Christ was enthroned upon, which encompasses all heaven and all earth. He was enthroned upon the, uh, within that kingdom at his ascension. Christ is enthroned in his kingdom. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and shall never be destroyed. That is the present reality which is revealed to us in the scriptures. And because you are a new creation, brothers and sisters, you have the eyes to see this kingdom. You have the eyes to see this kingdom to perceive the power and authority that Jesus has over his enemies, even today, here on this earth. You understand, therefore, how futile and insignificant it is to put any amount of trust or hope or security in a presidential candidate. Psalm 20, verse 7, addresses this very point. It says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And Psalm 146 addresses the same point. Uh, Beginning at verse three, do not trust in princes and mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. And now listen to this, verse eight. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. That's referring to regeneration. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widows, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. 
Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Now you can you you cannot say amen to Psalm 146 unless you have the eyes to see the kingdom of God. For those who do not have the eyes, Psalm 146 is nothing more than wishful thinking, pie in the sky. It's an empty pep talk. It's Christians trying to convince themselves that things are not as bad as they seem to be. But for us who have the eyes, because we've been born again, the truths expressed in Psalm 146 are some of the many reasons why we know our lives are secure in Jesus Christ, and we sing the praises of our King, even today, as He reigns triumphant from heaven. Having the eyes to see the kingdom of God, however, is not the sum total of being born again. Remember, Jesus, this just happens to be the characteristic that... uh, the characteristic of regeneration that Jesus chose to focus on when he's speaking to Nicodemus. Other parts of the Bible, other scriptural passages um, might focus on a different characteristic that uh, comes with being regenerate. For example, in John 10 verses 3 and 4, Jesus focused on regenerate ears. With Nicodemus, it's regenerate eyes. In John 10, it's uh, regenerated ears. Um, in speaking about shepherds, he said the shepherd, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, flee from the stranger for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then, and then a few verses later, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. There are many competing voices in this world that are calling out to you today. These, are, these voices are demanding your devotion, your attention, your allegiance. There are individuals, there are institutions that claim to be your shepherd, but they're really just thieves and robbers. What Jesus is saying in John 10 is that when, when God regenerated you, he gave you new ears, and these new ears are finely tuned to the voice of the true shepherd, the good shepherd. Your regenerate ears are able to distinguish Jesus' voice from that of all the strangers and imposters. So when the situation comes where you're presented by an imposter with an invitation to depart from your Savior and follow the counterfeit shepherd, your response, because of these finely tuned spiritual ears, your response will be similar to Peter's response in John 6, verses 68 and 69. You'll say, to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The the ears know that. Other parts of the Bible, the focus of regeneration is on a new mouth that God's people receive when they're born again. This new mouth is extremely different than the one that they had before their rebirth. Romans 3, verses 13 and 14, describes the unregenerate mouth. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's the unregenerate mouth. Psalm 40, verse 3, describes the new mouth that God gives to those he regenerates. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear, and I will trust in the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 8, tells of the new taste buds that God gives to those he regenerates. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Likewise, Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet are the words, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. God told us through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah about the new heart we receive when we're born again. He said in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah 24, 7, then I will give them a, a heart to know me, that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And these are just a few examples of how the scriptures highlight specific aspects of the radical transformation God accomplishes in the lives of those he regenerates. But remember, it's not just new eyes that you receive when you're born again. It's not just new ears or a new mouth or new taste buds or a new heart, but it's being made into a completely new spiritual creation. You've been brought from death to life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You have a new nature created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And this, brothers and sisters, is what permits you, enables you, motivates you, and compels you to walk in the newness of life that you have received in Jesus Christ and to do so out of gratitude for your regeneration and to give all praise and glory and honor to him who regenerated you. Amen. And let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.